Hallelujah. Good morning, everybody. No longer slaves to fear. That is so powerful. And I know that's, let's give it up for Val for doing that. I mean, I know that Jay, that's kind of Jay's song, but he's out of town enjoying some time with the family. And I asked him to do that song because it lays into um, what I want to share with you this morning. Um, I want to, uh, I just want to get right into this. I, I thank you. Did you ever, um, did you ever get in a time where you feel like you, things are converging, you felt like it was, uh, this is what you were born to do? Have you ever felt that way? Like you did it and you, you realized this is, this is what I was, and I, I want to share with you this morning about, uh, this is message number six in the all mixed up series here, if you can get me fired up there. And today's topic is sons or slaves. And um, this is a message I feel like I was born to preach. So I need you to bear with me. So I'm going to start by sitting down. Bets on how long I stay sit- seated. Come on, put your wagers out now. We'll raise, the, we'll raise this money for missions or something. I, just kidding. New people are going, really? I love this church. You get to gamble. Um, so anyway, I, I want to I get started and I, w- I want to talk to you about this, this understanding of sonship and, and uh, because I, I've lived a long time um, to come to the place where I could really sing this song this morning. And so I'm going to start in reading in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. And I'm going to read this from the Wiest translation. Uh, Kenneth Wiest wrote a series of books called uh, Word Studies in the Greek. And then he did a literal translation. He does a really great job of, uh, of translating the Greek uh, the original coin Greek into English, and uh, it's a you know it's not one you're going to see on the list, but but people who study use Kenneth Weiss's word studies and his stuff extensively. I mean across the board: Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, crazy Pentecostals. Everybody, because he, his scholarship and his accuracy is, is unchallenged. And this is a verse that you've heard in the King James, you know, and um, I really wanted to get the shade of, of, of the meaning here to you as we get started in this. And so I'm going to read to you from the Wiest translation, and then I'm going to translate this verse into the Mike version and show you the difference. It says, Behold what exotic, foreign to the human heart, love the Father has permanently bestowed upon us. Now I want you to let that soak in. Behold what exotic. It's so outside of the norm. 
It's so beyond what we really know and understand. It's even foreign to the human heart. But it's this love the Father has permanently bestowed upon us. To the end, in other words, he's given you the purpose, the purpose of this love to be bestowed is that we might be named. Now, when you father something, you get the right to name it. You with me? When you father something, and, I'm, and, and please don't think, because I'm going to use terms that, biblical terms this morning that are all inclusive. So when I say man, understand I'm talking about men and women. When I say fathering, I'm talking to you fathers and mothers. When I say sons, I'm talking to you sons and daughters, because that's how the scripture gives it. it, it the, the, these things are not relegated just to men or just to boys or just to the male gender, they're bestowed upon us as the children of God. And, he's, and so he says, God has given us this exotic love to the end that we might be named. God named us. And what he named us was children. God God named you children, sons and daughters of his. He didn't call you servants and, and slaves. and He didn't call you indebted. He didn't call you, you owe me. He, he didn't call you, you're into me. He called you the children of God. Because it's his right to name whatever he fathers. And it's always been that way, but... But it's, it's not always how it's been interpreted, even in the Christian realm. So I got saved many years ago as a young man, and I came into the faith, like all of us, with some dysfunction. And I'll explain that further as we go along, as the Lord permits. But when I came into the faith, I, I came in with an understanding of a great debt that had been paid for me and, and, and yet I had, I, because of my upbringing, I had no good model to see what a, what a real fathering looks like. And so, if you permit, I'm gonna, I'm gonna translate this verse in my translation after I came to God. So here is the Mike translation. Behold, what manner of outrageous and unrealistic expectations God demands of us that we should be called the servants of God. I, that's not right. Don't say, well, Pastor Mike, that's heresy. I know it's heresy. I lived it, though. Because when I came in, you see, you tend to bring your paradigm and your, your experience into what you begin a walk of, with God. And because I didn't know what a healthy father was, I didn't know how to relate to my heavenly father either. Because I had spent a good part of my life trying to please an earthly father who had withheld 
affection and affirmation from me, I turned into what, what, what I will show you in a bit translated into a performance. I, had to, I, I felt like I had to perform to get any kind of acceptance. And so I brought that, I'm, I'm just telling you, this is, I'm being honest, if you'll just bear with me, there's a, there's a good ending to this, I think. But I brought this into my walk with God, and I felt like I had to perform for God, and what I saw in the Bible was that God was, God's expectations were so outrageous because I would, I would strive to please God, and when I would... When I would get there, it always felt like I was still coming up just short. Do you, you, get, you get where I'm coming from? I, I felt like I was always just a little short and a little bit not enough. And, and because, you see, that was the paradigm that I had built into my mind because that's what my relationship translated into my earthly life. And I brought it into my heavenly walk with God. And I thought, well, I, I just can this is unrealistic. I don't know how to do this because it just seems like I can't please you, God. And it's unrealistic and it's outrageous what you're asking. And these demands, I see them in Scripture. And when I see it, Lord, I just want to be your servant. I want to be your servant. And you see, what I was doing was I was serving God out of a slave mentality. Whew. Now they got that confession off my chest. Because I even brought it into the ministry when I started out into full-time ministry. It was all about achievement. It was all measuring it on the basis of performance. For years, it felt like I was on a treadmill. And when I was young, I could really keep up. I could run it at a good pace. But how many of you know it gets exhausting if you are trying to please someone whom you feel like you can never really please? This wasn't God's fault. This wasn't how God, because God interpreted what a, behold, what manner of love. You got to behold this. You got to get, you got to get a new paradigm. You got to get a new way of looking at this because if you bring your old thinking, your old experience, your old wounds, your old hurts into the walk with God, you bring your dysfunction into Jesus and you become a dysfunctional child of God. So if you'll permit me, I'm going to give you some scripture here so that I can talk to you from my heart here in a minute because I feel like God is going to set some people free this morning. It says in 1 John 1, 3 and 4, it says, we are telling you about what we have seen and heard. Now this is John talking. The apostle whom the Bible says Jesus loved one of the great prophetic voices in the whole New Testament. Many people, I asked somebody the other day, I said, who would you say is the greatest prophetic voice in the Bible, in the, in the New Testament, in the New Testament church? 
And right away they went, Paul. I asked some other people, and I, you know, I got I got some different answers. Peter was speaking prophetically. There was a lot of but I, I believe John was the most prophetic voice in the entire New Testament church. I think we have a picture of prophets that's somewhat skewed by our paradigm today too because we think prophets are the ones who thunder down God's wrath and judgment and actually New Testament prophets put their head on the heart of Jesus and they hear his heart and they speak from love. We are telling you about what we, John, we, the apostles, those who are leading this infant church, we are telling you what we have seen and heard, what we have experienced, because we want you to have fellowship with us. Fellowship. We want you to come into fellowship with us. We want, you know what fellowship is, it's fellows in the same ship. We're fellows, we're fellow sojourners, we're fellows, we're all fellows, and we're all in the same boat. And he said, we want you to have fellowship with us, that koinonia, that, that spiritual connection, because out of that, listen to what he says, the fellowship we share together is with God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. We write these things to you so that you can be full of joy with us. Joy is born out of fellowship. Joy is the byproduct, now listen to me now, joy is a byproduct of intimacy with the Lord. If there's a lack of joy in your life, there's a lack of intimacy with the Lord in your heart. It's time to stand. <laughs> Jesus, I was hoping to get through a few more minutes. <sighs> See what, listen what he says. The fellowship we share together, everybody say together. together. See, as the church is called into fellowship together, this is what we're here for, church. The church is here to come together. The church is not a place that you hide. The church is not a place where you pretend. The church is not a place where you put on your Sunday best and come and then go back to your mess and pretend like everything is great. The church is fellows that are jacked up all in the same ship. And this ship is rocking and tossing. But we're in this together, and as we go after God together, what we see is out of that comes this great joy. Joy, listen to me now, joy is a satisfaction with God. I'm completely satisfied with God. And here, let me tell you something, it's really hard to be satisfied with God if you are dissatisfied with yourself. And so John's saying, listen, I want, you, I want to tell you what I've experienced because what I've experienced is that you come into fellowship with us and this fellowship that we share as we all go after God is that the joy of the Lord is going to manifest in our lives 
And the joy of the Lord is going to change us. Can you say amen to that? So the goal, really, the goal, listen to me, church, the goal is fellowship. But now, see, when you're in a slave mentality, you know what I always thought about fellowship? I thought fellowship is that little break you get after you've worked your butt off for something. Can I say butt in church? And if that offends you, I apologize. So it's after you work your rear end off. And, and we put our blood and sweat and tears in it, and we go, now we got that done. Let's have a little break, and let's fellowship. That's how I thought of fellowship. But the Bible speaks of fellowship as the goal. The goal is that we gather together, and based on our fellowship, then and our abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ and the manifestation of his presence in us and through us, as we abide in him, we fellowship in him, then everything that comes out of that fellowship is the ministry that is born out from us, and it comes then out of an inner motivation and not out an outer drive that you're trying to do something to please God. Are you with me this morning? There's a huge difference in your motivation to do something to try to get the approval of God than doing something out of the approval of God. That's really good right there. So listen to this. Anything we do, including ministry, that's not born out of this, out of fellowship, is meaningless and contrived. I know this is my words. You have to quote me. I, I can't blame. I, I'm telling you that I'm, this is a message that I believe. Because listen, folks, I have done a lot of ministry that was meaningless and contrived. I'm being honest with you. I'm telling you that this is because, because I was not doing it out from my fellowship with the Lord. I was doing it to try to please God and gain some sort of approval from him. And so the word contrived, you know, means that it has a false appearance. Like, here's, here's the false appearance. I'm going to do this to save people. But really, the motive behind it was, I'm going to do this to try to get the Father to smile and say, I like that. I like you. Huge difference. You know, there's a lot of things going on in church today that are contrived. There's a lot of preachers that are preaching contrived messages to get to an end to feed their own insecurity. How do you, can you say that, Pastor Mike? Because I've been there, done that, bought the shirt. Maybe some of you are sitting here this morning and you've been serving God a long time and you know what I'm talking about. You know when something's being done for an appearance. And it's a fake. Because in the end, everything will be seen for what it is. And so... Our goal is fellowship. Some people look at the city circle thing and they go, yeah, well, the, goal is, uh, the goal is to get more of the Bible in us. No, it's not. The goal, is to, the goal is to get people saved. No, it's not. 
The goal is to, I mean, you can name whatever you want to name in there, but here's what the goal of City Circles is. Fellowship. Guess what happens when there's true Bible fellowship? When the church comes together in true fellowship and the joy of the Lord is manifested because of our abiding in the Father through the Son, people will get saved, people will get healed, lives will be changed. Everything that we've desired and wanted is born out of our relationship with him. But if you put the action in front of the relationship, you can do the action separated from him. And Jesus said in John 15, without me, you can do nothing. No soup for you. The goal is fellowship. But that was not really high on my priority list. In fact, I was so driven, I seldom took time for fellowship. Because I saw that, well, well, what a waste of time. I could be out doing something. But all the while then, see, that father wound that was deep in my heart never got addressed. Because I never was in a context of fellowship where it could get uncovered and healed. And this is not a sad message. This is just the fact, the reality. So I want you to bear with me. 1 John 1, 5 to 7. We heard the true teaching from God. (laughs) See, God's always trying to bring us to truth. And truth is always going to set you free. Say amen, somebody. We heard the true teaching from God. Now we tell it to you. We heard the true teaching from God. Isn't it amazing how Jesus... More so than all, Jesus didn't put his disciples through a whole thing of theology. He just said, here, I want you to hang out with me. And born out of that, they got teaching. They watched him teach. They listened to him teach. Many times Jesus would teach, and then they'd go back later, and they'd say, hey, master, would you tell us what you just said? Because we don't get it. And out of that fellowship, Jesus would unpack the true teaching from God. And they, would, they were changed by it. They were transformed by it. Now John says, now we tell you, now we tell it to you. God is light. God is light. God is always exposing the dark areas of our lives. God is light, and in him there is no darkness. See, God traffics in light. Let me, let me say this because this is important for some of you. Listen to me. You need to get this into your heart. God always travels in light. Therefore, God is always bringing us to the light. Therefore, the light is always uncovering what is hidden. Therefore, the light is there to expose our hearts. Not because God's trying to shame us. We, I think we did a pretty good job of showing you last week that God's not here, here to shame you. He's here to name you. I'm going to show you why that's important in a minute. And so, so he says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness. So if God traffics in light, who traffics in darkness? Satan. Satan is always trafficking in darkness. Whatever you keep in the darkness, Satan uses over you to keep you bound and keep you oppressed. 
The moment you expose it to light, it cannot have any more power over you because light is greater than darkness. But if you came into the church for, uh, as, as a general rule, you find a lot of things keeping hid. Because church is a great place to hide. I hid in church once. I found the biggest one I could find, and I hid there. So I just need to be healed. And God had to bring me into a little bitty fellowship with a small group of God-loving, God-fearing people to get me out of my darkness. Because you can run, but you cannot hide. He said, God is light, in him there is no darkness. So if we say that we have, that if we say that we share life... <laughs> If we say that we share in life with God, but we continue living in darkness, we are liars who don't follow the truth. You see, what is a believer? Are believers perfect? No, but what believers do is they commit to follow the truth. I'm following the truth. And so as God exposes any darkness in my life, my, my commitment is to walk in it. So if God shows you something, you know what your commitment is? Walk in it. And he will not show you any more light till you walk in what he has already revealed. People go, man, I, I want more. I want more light. God will not give you any more light until you walk in the light that he has already given to you. We follow truth. We should live in the light. Look at your neighbor and say, we need to live in the light. What's the alternative? You're going to live in darkness if you don't live in the light. What happens if we live in the light? We have fellowship with each other. You know what? It's funny to me how people's things that they hide in darkness causes them to separate from people. And then they make themselves a victim and say, I can't stand those people. And when in truth is, you can't stand the darkness in your own heart. See, for years I was angry because I didn't understand this father wound that I had. I was angry at my wife. I was angry at my church. I preached angry. People would say, man, that was, that was hard. That's what happens when you're mad. Some people get anointed and preach. Sometimes I just got mad and preached. Sometimes it was better when I was mad. I mean, it felt better. Not to the poor people that were getting struck by lightning. Please stop. But you see, I was preaching from an anger that was within me because I had a wound that had not been addressed. And I had no one in my life because here's the thing. I'm going to talk about this this morning because this is going to be hard for some of us. But I'm going to, I'm going to teach about this morning about a wound that almost everyone in this room has carried, has, 
has carried or is carrying that we don't want to talk about, and it has to do with a father wound. Are you ready? Sons and daughters, listen to me, sons and daughters are fathered. Wow, Pastor Mike, that's not profound. No, but it's something that I didn't understand because I, I was, I, when I came into the faith, I wasn't being fathered. I was being prepared to go serve. And everything around me because of the paradigm in me was that I was being prepared to go make that sacrifice. Now here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 14, 15. This is really powerful and this is, this is what has really changed my whole paradigm, the beginning of this. So this is what I'm sharing you from, to you with, from my heart. This is why I feel like this is the message that I was born to share. It says, I'm not trying to make you feel ashamed. Now, now listen, to this. this is Paul talking to the church at Corinth. And there was a lot of shenanigans going on in Corinth. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff. And he said, I'm not trying to make you feel ashamed. Remember, God's never going to bring you into shame. God does not use shame. He does not need shame. He will not employ shame to get his in. Paul says, and, and let me tell you something, anybody who tries to make you feel ashamed is manipulating you and you need to say no. You can only be manipulated if there's some measure of shame in your life. Once you get victory over the shame in your life, no one can use you again. Because listen, you say, I have surrendered to people who I knew had bad motives and who I knew it was not going to turn out well. But I laid my life down and served and realized they can't hurt me. Jesus, remember Jesus? They said, Pilate said, don't you know I can kill you? Jesus said, you can't kill me. I have the power to lay it down and take it up again. See, I can lay my life down. And when I do, I can't be hurt. But when there's shame in my life and I get treated badly, all of a sudden now I'm off-ended. And so what happens, Paul says, I'm not trying to make you feel ashamed. I'm not here to try to manipulate you. I'm not trying to control you. I'm not here to tell you what to do. But I am writing this to counsel you as my own dear children. Because listen to what he says here. You may have 10,000 teachers in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. Through the good news, I became your father in Christ Jesus. Boom, when I read that, I realized I had spent a good deal of my ministry as a ministry leader or a ministry CEO, a ministry boss, a ministry teacher, and I had missed this because of the wound in my own heart. I did not and would not and was not walking as a father. 
And so I, I looked at this and I'm like, Paul, now Paul, you know, he was a preacher. So you know how preachers do, they tend to, they tend to exaggerate. Paul says, you have 10,000 teachers. I doubt if they had 10,000. You know what the point he was trying to make? Everybody out there is going to try to tell you something. But there's only a handful of people who are really willing to father you and walk you through this. And so on the basis of this, you see what the kingdom of God is all about. Because the kingdom of God is fathers and mothers plus sons and daughters equals the kingdom. Here's how Jesus did it. Our father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Set that name apart, that father name. Our father. He didn't say, he did not say Elohim, Jehovah Jireh. He didn't use one of God's great names. He, he said our father. Why? Because it's a term of endearment. It's a term of relationship. Our father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your name. There's no greater name by God than the name father because it represents the true heart of God in that he's trying to bring sons and daughters into fellowship, into relationship with him because that's what the kingdom of God is. Anything that is not represented in fathers and sons and mothers and daughters can't truly represent the kingdom. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is God trying to do? He's trying to father us and he's trying to create fathers and mothers within the confines of the church and the kingdom of God. And yet what we find is more of a corporate structure, a cold structure. We find more employees than we do sons. We find more servants than we do children of God. It's easier, it's easier just to commit to something and say, well, I'm just going to do this than it is to become this. It got really quiet in here. So I'm going to show you something about this in Scripture because I want to try to get to a part of my story that if I have time, I want to lay into this. In Genesis chapter 25, verse 24 and 25, I'm going to show you this from Scripture. And I'm going to show it to you in the life of Jacob. In Genesis 25, 24, it says, when the right time came, Rebekah gave birth to twins. We know those twins were Jacob and Esau. We know Esau was the firstborn, and, the, and we know that it says he was red. That's an interesting, here's a description of this baby. He was red and he would hurry. <laughs> and so the, you know what they named him? Esau. You know what Esau means? Harry. <laughs> What's your name? Harry. <laughs> yeah, I get it. When the second baby was born, he was, now listen to this, he was holding tightly to Esau's heel. This kind of shows you a picture of Esau because Esau comes out and he's grabbed a hold. Now, this is very interesting. He's grab a, grabs a hold of, of Esau's heel. It's almost like he's trying to pull himself up and come first. You get the idea? He's, he's trying to maneuver and get, because he wants to be first. I don't know, there's something in, inborn into him that he wanted to be the first. He didn't want to be second born. And so, you know what they called him? 
Jacob. You know what Jacob means? Cheater. Deceiver. That's what Jacob, how, how'd, your mama, how'd you like your mama to name you Jacob? Cheater, you cheater. I mean, if, if our mamas named us, some of y'all be named Sloppy. I ain't even going to go there. I could come up with some really good names for some of y'all. But get the, get the thing, he's, 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 he's Jacob. He's, what was Jacob's life earmarked by? He's always trying to get over on somebody. Read Jacob's, I don't have time to go over here. Read Jacob's life. He was always trying to get over on somebody. And Esau, he was always hunting. I think it's because he blended in so good with all that red hair on him. And so you see here, and here's what was prophesied to Rebekah, that there's two great leaders in your womb. And there's two men who are going to lead two great nations. And yet the younger is going to, the elder is going to serve the younger. So here's the birth of a, of a man who comes out and, and two men who come out and one comes out. You know, in the Old Testament, the firstborn son had a lot of rights and privileges that the rest didn't have. You got a double portion of the inheritance. You had, you know, you're generally, you're generally the favorite, you know. And, and so Jacob spends most of his life, you know, in the shadow of that. I, I want to show you. I want to show you this because here's these two leaders. You ready? The boys, this is 26, 27, 28, Genesis. It says the boys grew up. Esau became a skilled hunter who loved to be out in the fields. But Jacob was a quiet man who stayed at home. Isaac loved Esau. That's interesting, isn't it? Here's where, here's where the father wound comes in. Because, because Isaac showed favoritism, because he didn't make any bones about it. If you read it, if you read it, he didn't make any bones about it. Esau was his favorite. One, one reason was because he loved to eat the game that Esau brought in and cooked. And he, and he, and he, and he, he, he loved it. He loved Esau. Esau was his favorite. It says Isaac loved Esau. So here's, here's my question to you. How do you think that made Jacob feel most of his life? Feeling like you're, you're second. That you don't measure up. I don't love you as much. You, and, no matter, and here's what happens because of this. It had an impact on Jacob's life and, and his character as well. You ready for this? So in Genesis 26, 32, 33, Jacob uses deception to gain an edge on Esau. You know this story, right? I'm not going to turn to it. I'm just going to tell it to you. I'm not gonna, I wouldn't tell you a lie. It's in there. Read it. Jake, Esau comes in from the hunting, and he's all hungry. He's about ready to faint. He's so hungry. And Jacob sees it as an opportunity. And so he cooks him a meal and then says... Or he has something actually already cooking. And Esau says, man, I'm hungry. I'm going to faint. I'm going to die if I don't eat something. And Jacob says, I'll give it to you if you'll give me your firstborn heritage. Yeah. 
And Esau says, well, it wouldn't do me any good if I'm dead. All right, he'll do it. And the Bible says he didn't respect his, his portion. And here's what he did. He traded his inheritance for a bowl of soup. And some of us have traded our inheritance for less. And so in this, Jacob gets the firstborn thing. But you see, what you see here is I want to explain this to you because you should write this down. This is really, really good. This is really, really powerful. What happened, in, what happened with this wound that Jacob grew up with, that he was always second, always second choice, always second best, always rejected, it was a sense of rejection because he didn't get affirmed, he didn't get appreciated, he didn't get approval. What happens, he grew up with an A syndrome. Now, here's what the A syndrome is. It's when a person doesn't get the affirmation and affection needed as a child. Because all of us are born and need affirmation and affection. I'm not psychologizing the gospel either. Don't leave here and say, Pastor Mike, that's all a bunch of psychobabble. No, let me tell you how important this is. Jesus has one event recorded in his, in his life between the time he was born and his public ministry. And it was when he was 12 years old. Remember that? And, and they find him. They, they get halfway back home and they realize, where's Jesus? Wouldn't that, isn't it, have you ever lost Jesus? Have you ever woke up one day and went, where's Jesus? They got, and, and they went back, panicked, found him in the temple, and here's what Jesus said. Didn't you know I should be about my father's business? He had a real security in his identity as a son. Then listen to this, his Coming out in obscurity, he gets baptized in the river by John. After he gets baptized, the heavens open and there's a voice from heaven. You know what it says? This is an affirmation. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. You know, I lived, most, I lived almost all of my life waiting for that to come from my earthly father. If you don't get the affirmation, the affection needed as a child in order to gain approval, you turn to achievement for acceptance. Jesus was not performing. Everything Jesus did, he did out of his relationship with the Father, not in order to gain a relationship with him. Most of everything I've done in my ministry life, I've done out of an achievement mentality trying to get God's acceptance for my life because I was wounded. My wound came. I was 12 years old. I'll never forget this. It's like burned into my heart. It was an arrow. I was playing in a little league championship series where we traveled out of our region because our, I, was, I was a good baseball player as a kid. And they put together this team because we didn't have like all this traveling teams and all this stuff like they do now. You just, if you won and you did well, you got put on this team. And then you, 
you know, you got moved on. And we, we were playing a really, really good team against players that were in a whole other caliber than I was used to playing against. We had a pitcher that was pitching against us that could throw the ball faster than anyone I had ever tried to hit against. And I was, I was afraid. I was intimidated. But one of the rare times that my dad ever came to one of my games, because my dad was a workaholic and he hardly ever came to anything. And I remember stepping up to the bat and the game was close, the game was tight, and, and I stepped up to the plate and I watched this first pitch and I'm like, oh, Lord. Strike one. He reared back, wound up, pitched again. Strike two. I didn't even get the bat off my shoulder. I'm like, there's no way. I, I, don't, I don't know. Nobody, you know, he had pitched like the whole game. He was, he was, he was pitching a no-hitter. And the, and the game was like one to nothing. We were losing. And here comes the third pitch. And this is the truth. I never even saw the ball. I can't say, boy, I had it all the way from his hand to the, to the bat. I put that bat back, swung as hard as I could, and actually hit the ball over the fence. And I don't even know how I did that. I ran around the bases. The guy who came up after me, he hit a home run. I, my, I could not wait till that game was over. I ran off the field, ran up to my dad. Was waiting to hear those words. Great job, son. That was an awesome hit. In the third inning, I'd bobble the ball and cause an error. And the first thing that came out of my dad's mouth was, why'd you drop that ball? And my 12-year-old heart yes. felt like it had an arrow shot into it. And I was angry, and I dropped my head, and I walked away saying, I hate my dad. I'm not blaming my dad because he was just thought that was a way to motivate me to become a better ball player was to point out the things I was doing wrong. But what my 12-year-old heart needed was to hear, hey, son, good job. I wonder how many times we've been in that situation with people. Are we going to wait till people do, you know, next week, Kimbrough ladies are going to be sitting in this service. And they're all a bunch of Jacobs. But are we going to wait till they do something to hug them, love them, and tell them God has a plan and a purpose for their life? Or are we going to look them in the eye, love them where they're at, and say, God brought you here for a reason. We love you and we're going to serve you. So that set me on a path. I played football. I played baseball all through high school. I was an MVP. I had papers, newspaper articles. My mom, before she died, gave 
me a lot of those things. My mom kept every newspaper article, every trophy, everything I ever won. She kept it and she gave it to me because that's how moms are. But see, that didn't heal my wound because what I was needing was to hear my dad. So I took that into my performance. I took that into my work. I took that into everything I did. I was always trying to outperform, outachieve, outdo everybody. And then I got saved and I brought it into my ministry. Is this too honest for everybody? And so it led to a lot of things, a lot of mess, a lot of, a lot of frustration, a lot of emptiness, a lot of vainness, a lot of meaninglessness, a lot of anger. And I remember bringing myself to a place of just being broken and, and uh, remember when God confronted me on this darkness in my life. And God spoke to me clearly in a voice and said, Mike you're already accepted in me. Stop it. And it began a healing process. It it delivered me from my slavery to fear and all the things that I've been trying to do in order to please God that I never could seem to do quite good enough or no matter how it worked out. And and that was the ACE syndrome that worked in my life for, for a long time. What did I do? Can you move that to the next slide? It's locked for some reason. So Jacob went to Isaac, his father, and Isaac felt him and said, your voice sounds like Jacob's voice. You know, this is the part of the story where Jacob goes in to deceive his own father in order to get his approval because he, he's told by his mother that Jake, uh, Isaac is about to bestow the blessing. He said, you go get this stuff. I'm going to cook it up, and we're going to... We're going to put some hair, goat hair on your arms and neck, and we're going to deceive uh, Isaac so he gives you uh, Esau's blessing. Now listen to this. So Jacob went to Isaac, his father. Isaac felt him and said, your voice sounds like Jacob. Jacob's voice. Isaac was blind. And he, he kind of sensed something was up, but he, did, he, couldn't, he didn't know. But your arms are hairy like the arms of Esau. Yeah, you're rubbing goat hair. He had a toupee on his arms. I mean, that's what happened. Read it. Isaac did not know it was Jacob because his arms were hairy, like Esau's. You see what he's doing? He's deceiving his own father. This is how bad he wanted this approval. You get it, church? He was willing to work any kind of deception So Isaac blessed Jacob, and Isaac said, are you really my son Esau? Jacob answered, yes, I am. And what it goes on to say is Isaac blessed him. Then a few minutes later, Esau comes bouncing in the room, and he says, oops, sorry, I gave it to your brother. Your brother pretended to be you. Here's what John Eldridge in his book, um, Wild at Heart, here's what he says about Jacob. It's so powerful. He says, any man who has this father wound in him and who, has, and who carries it becomes a poser. See, Jacob was posing as Esau. 
And do you know if you carry these wounds in your heart, you will pose. You will pretend to be something you're not to get the approval that you're desperately craving out of a heart that's seeking someone to affirm and approve of you. This is why a lot of fathers are crippled in their, in their inability to really be there for their kids because you can't really give something that you don't have. If you don't have a healthy relationship and know your heavenly father is your father, how are you going to relate to children who are desperately needing something that you can't give them? Are you with me? And so what you end up doing is you become a poser. You become a poser. You start pretending to be something that you're not. I pretended to be this preacher. I pretended to be this person that I thought God wanted me to be. And all the while, I I did not understand. God said, Mike, I just want you to be you. You don't have to be somebody else. You don't have to be like somebody else. Just be you. I love you. I made you. You don't have to worry about it. I would, I live, Terry will tell you, I would preach messages and I would go into depression for three days because I didn't feel like it was a good enough. Now, I go home and eat lunch, <laughs> put my feet up and say, how'd you like that, Father? He said, good stuff, son. I said, well, if you liked it, I love it. See, I'm serious. I'm serious. This is what happens. You, many of you are posing. But to see, you, cannot, you cannot carry on a pose very long. Sooner or later, you will get uncovered. And I say the sooner the better. I'm here to tell you today, I live for years like this. You don't have to live like this anymore. You don't have to live like a refugee. I think I'll write a song. (laughs) You don't have to live in fear as a slave and try to be something you're not. All you have to do is be who God created you to be. Connect to him as your heavenly father and just be a son. And you'll hear God's voice from heaven. I'm really pleased. I'm really pleased. I'm really pleased. See, that was something I I didn't do to people around me either. I even had staff people. I thought, well, you know, why should I pay them a compliment? I I paid them to do that because fathers affirm. Fathers affirm. Even when your kids mess up, your fathers are, are there to wrap their arms around you and say, hey, we'll do better next time. Some of you desperately need to know that God's not mad at you. But he will not let you be a poser. You need to get real and need to come clean and you need to get it out. And you need to say, I'm carrying this. I've been wounded. I've been hurt. I I had to deal with it. I had to deal with it. I, I even had to deal with this with my father. The father wants us to stop posing. Stop posturing and stop performing 
and start becoming by simply beholding and live in the blessing. You could quote me on that. Because it took me 30 years to be able to say that. You know what posturing is, right? Where you're always trying to work, your, work something to get what you want. Now I've stopped posturing because I don't want anything, but I want what the Father wants. I'm not posturing. I'm not performing. I'm not up here to perform. I'm not pastoring to perform. There's one audience, there's one person in this audience that I aim to please this morning. And he is my heavenly father. He knows my name. He named me. He knew me in my mother's womb. He knew the wounds in my life. And he healed me and set me free. For years, I struggled with my dad thing. Can I tell this story? Because I've never told this story. In fact, it's pretty fresh. Because even when God began this healing process, I felt like there was a, something between me and my father, and I kept trying to bust that thing down and trying to approach it and trying to, trying to connect with my dad on a real level. And I always felt like there was this arm's distance thing going. And I, 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 I'll tell you the truth, about the beginning of this year, I'd all but given up. Terry will tell you, I, I said, I don't know what else to do. I've, I've reached, I've tried, I've opened my heart. I have, I've tried to build this bridge and it just seems like it's this far and no further. In February of this year, I got a note on Messenger this person introduced themselves to me as my sister. And, of course, I, I'm like, well, I don't believe this. I came, you know, my, my oldest sister died a few years ago. I've got a younger sister. My younger brother passed away. I have another sister who died a crib death when I was, I was very small. She was an infant. My mom just died two years ago. I'm thinking somebody's just trying to play with me and they messengered me on my private wall. And, but they said things that I knew somebody had to, only somebody from the inside would know. They put this post on and then they took it down. And I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't have a way of getting it back or finding it and getting the name. I didn't, I didn't capture it. I, I was kind of stunned. And all things, you can imagine, all these things were running in my head from she's a poser to this is going to be bad. And so a few days later, this post came back up said, I've written this 40 times. And 
she told the story and said that I'm your sister. She said, I'm not, she said, I'm not looking for anything. I'm just wanting to connect. Her mom was just, had been, was in the final stages of lung cancer and actually would pass away in two more months. I think there was something in her heart looking to connect with something that had been severed from her and she had a wound. She had a father wound too. I asked her if I could talk to her on the phone. I got her number, I called her, we had some conversations on the phone. She sent me some pictures of some connections that had been made over the years. She's 47 years old. This happened when I was about 12 years old. So now I've got this knowledge running in my head. I don't know what to do. And I'm like, dear God. First thing I had to do was sort out all my emotion and all my disappointment and my hurt. I had to forgive my dad. I had to, I had to find freedom in my heart because I didn't want to go talk to him out of anger or out of, out of fear or out of disappointment. Or I wanted to go in, in reconciliation and in the right spirit. And so I confronted my dad. And I said, Dad, is this true that you had an affair on my mom and that this woman is a product of this affair? He didn't hesitate. He said, yes. And we talked for a long time and he was, he was shocked coming out of like how it came out and suddenly, you know, the, the brokenness sets on him, the the fact that he kept something hid like this for 47 years. All of a sudden, though, it started to make sense to me because, you see, remember a few months ago, I, say, I made this statement, whatever, whatever overshadows you is released from you. And he had lived 47 years in guilt and shame and kept it hid. And now it was all about to go out. Karen, my sister, came up, invited, I, I said, I want to know you. I want to I know you. You're my sister. I want to get to know you. She came up. We got to spend time together, got to connect, our hearts connected. She's a wonderful person, loves the Lord. It's not bitter, but broken. And God's doing a work there, and, and I'm happy to just be a part of her life. And, and then there's my dad thing. My dad's operating under this guilt and under this shame, and he's been operating under it. And I see, I, I finally realized the reason that I could only go this far is because of the darkness. And now God is bringing it to light. And so as this thing's unfolded and, and uh, I told my dad, I, I said, you know, I got a younger sister who I knew was going to be devastated by this, but she was kept in the, the dark. And I told my dad, you got to tell her, dad. You got to tell her. He said, no, you tell her. I said, no, you coward. You tell her. It's time for you. I said, think, I wanted to tell you that 
God has allowed this to happen because it's time for you to get free. And he did, and it was hard. One of the hardest things he ever did. He felt all this fear and this shame and all of this guilt and all of this. And I called him on the way home from when he had told my sister. I said, Dad, what's going on in your heart? He says, I feel like a million pounds has been lifted off of me. You see, because where the light shows, no darkness can prevail. I don't care what kind of hurt you've been in in your life. I'm going to tell you something. Jesus is the healer of the broken heart. He gives beauty for ashes and the oil of joy for mourning. He's a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And I want to tell you, if some of you are hiding things, you need to come out of hiding. If you've you got shame in your life, you need to get rid of it because you cannot impart love and acceptance and, and all that you need to to your children unless you get free yourself. And you see, once God starts working in your life and you start operating out of your sonship or your daughtership, everything changes because everything comes then from your Father which is in heaven. And you just simply start becoming what God created you to be simply by beholding. As you behold him, you're transformed, you're changed. And you're not doing it to perform, to posture, uh, to, to, to pose. You're doing it because you love the Father and you know the Father loves you. And all of a sudden, you just start walking in the blessing because God has, but God is not going to bless darkness. God wants to bless his sons and daughters. And some of you need to have the guts to walk away from your shame. You need to shake yourself and wake yourself and say enough is enough. You say, how do we do that? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on this, back onto the stage. We're going to sing this song again. I'm no longer a slave to fear. Listen, I know some of your wounds are deep. I know some, I know some listen, I know this. I know I'm standing here today trying to be honest and open with you and tell you I know what this is. I know, I know what this does. I know... I know how this can I know how this can seem to be like, well, this is the end. I can't I can't do this anymore. When really God says, no, 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 this is just the beginning. Because if you will let me, I make all things new. Aren't you tired of living in the old stuff? Rummaging for some kind of love and acceptance? Aren't you ready to walk in what God has for you? Then stop posing. Stop pretending. Stop posturing. And just make it real to God and say, God, here I am. All the good, the bad, and the ugly. God, walk into my life and change me. Do what you need to do. So I stand here today as a, as a, as, as a person who, who's been through a great change Many things that I wanted and I saw in my heart for years. God could not do it until he dealt with this orphan heart in me. But I want to tell you something today. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I want you to stand with me.